Welcome to the Unpolished MBA. I'm your host, Monique Mills. Many times entrepreneurs are called unpolished because they are scrappy and do things in unconventional ways. Well, I like the name Unpolished MBA so much that I even trademarked it. So on this podcast, we commend those with practical experience because they've proven time and time again that one can be successful in business even if they don't have a formal MBA degree. So on each episode, we discuss topics related to business and entrepreneurship. And I've been told that my guests and I provide insights and inspiration to aspiring and current entrepreneurs alike. So this is the place where you can come and hear real life stories that can help you navigate both challenges and opportunities in business. Now let's jump into the next episode. excited to have you, Caitlin. Hello, Unpolished MBA audience. I have a special guest with me today, Caitlin Ferguson. Hello, Caitlin. Hey, Monique. So Caitlin, if you go to her LinkedIn profile, which I'm going to share in the show notes, it says that this is her tagline. I help companies go from ambitious vision to operational success at scale. Now that's serious because (laughs) it's Because that is probably one of the hardest things most of the entrepreneurs that listen to this show and that I know, which is like hundreds of them, struggle with. So I want to talk to Caitlin about her approach to this and a little bit more about the fractional COO um, services that she offers. So Caitlin, do you mind us jumping right into some of this stuff here? Let's do it. (laughs) You know, I, I want to start with when you say I help companies go from ambitious vision. So most of the times that ambitious vision starts with like a startup. So tell me what stages of companies do you work with? So I like to work with companies that have had a little bit of an opportunity to get out there and really find their footing. Maybe not all the way to product market fit, but they've started to see some revenue and they're getting some ideas that they want to test. Um, I'm really comfortable working with founders that have, you know, more than a couple of ideas that are up on the whiteboard and they're trying to figure out how to really narrow focus, how to use evidence early to figure out where they need to be spending time and resources. Um, I think you and I have talked before about my philosophy that companies, particularly to startups, don't starve to death. They drown um, from lack of focus. So I really enjoy coming in and helping founders or, or business owners, maybe even those who have, you know, gone through, who have become entrepreneurs through acquisition, um, really narrow in on what is the vision? How do we make it tactical? How do we get teams moving in the right direction? And what are the things that we need to measure to know that we are succeeding, not just at the finish line, but along the path? Okay. You mentioned before that it's something, it's like, you know, it, doing this, you, you are not a full-time employee for the company. You offer uh, fractional services. So I saw a post that you did about this not too long ago where you try to clarify for folks who are kind of confused about what fractional yeah. means. Uh, that's popping up everywhere now. Before it used to be freelancer, other t- and then it used to be consultant. And now you're seeing more 
specificity when people yes. mention the work they do and they'll say, I'm a fractional sales leader, I'm a fractional CMO, you know, whatever that is. And so in your clarification of it, you're, you, you let folks know it doesn't just mean a part-time consultant or advisor. So what does a fractional leader mean? Like when people say that? Yeah. And it's a great question because especially right now, there's so much interest and heat around the topic of fractional that I, I think we're seeing the term broaden in definition. But as I've as I've always understood it. All right, let's take a moment to thank the biggest sponsor of the Unpolished MBA. That's TPM Focus. TPM Focus is a strategy consulting firm that helps startups and small business owners generate revenue and find their way to profitability when they're launching a new product or in a new market. So reach out to tpmfocus.com. TPM stands for the Profit Matters Focus.com. Uh, the difference between a fractional and, you know, some of the other roles you've listed, a freelancer, a consultant, advisor, your fractional talent is coming in and joining your leadership team. And they are there not just to help craft a strategy, but they're also there to roll up their sleeves and really get into the work, embed with the team coach and mentor the team as necessary. Um, they'll often have folks report into them from the organization, which is a key distinction a lot of times from consultants who may be providing expertise, but are doing so um, kind of in a different swim lane than the core personnel. And then the last thing is, it's not necessarily got a set end date. A lot of the companies that really consider fractional talent are having to choose between do we hire a full-time person that we have to pay salary that may be a little bit too green to help us figure out a lot of stuff, or do we hire a fractional talent and have them provide that jet fuel for the organization as we're trying to figure out operations or a go-to-market strategy or you know gearing up for fundraising or what have you. You can generally see that fractional talent can come in at a more affordable rate than a full-time employee that's green and therefore provide a lot more value. And that role doesn't end in three months, six months, et cetera. It scales with the companies. Presumably by the time that fractional talent is leaving, it's because there's enough resources to backfill with a full-time employee at the right level. That's a great explanation of the distinction. One of the things when I see like freelancers, let's say they, they have freelancer in their title, the way that they work, including with consultants, the way that they work is that you're right. They don't become, you know, an integral part of the team where folks are reporting to them. It's typically, you know, just conversations and discussion and work with the executive team or whoever hired them, right? So in the work that you're doing on like the fractional COO basis, if let's say it's a, let's say it's a tech startup, I'm just going to say, no, I don't even want to say that. <laughs> I, I, want, I don't want to say that because that's a whole nother territory. Let me get. Let me just give you an example of a more established business, a, a SMB, just 
that has been recently acquired, okay? Let's say it's a plumbing company, which is very common now. Trade The trades are very common as far as HVAC, electrical, painting companies, roofing is huge with a lot of folks mm-hmm. acquiring them right now. So let's say it's a plumbing company and I mean... They, they think they have it figured out when they sign the papers and they get in there and it's a whole different story inside the company. Right. How would you, at what point would you come in? Yeah. Um, is it pre or post closing? Does that relationship start? But secondly, what would be some of the first things I guess you would do upon engaging with this business? Yeah. So particularly for the folks that are going through acquisition, I would love to start the conversations as soon as they're even thinking about setting up the search fund. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but that's actually how my parents grew their businesses. They had started as a startup, but then they went on to acquire a, a local company. So I think having having a partner throughout that process who can help give you some perspective on, um, you know, some questions to ask and due diligence uh, and then help you hit the ground running once those once the deal has closed. I think is is key, a key to the success. Now, in terms of what are the things when I can actually get my hands into the the guts of things, um, there's really there's we can almost boil it down to four steps. Step one is really get in and understand what is the core of the operations. How do we go ahead and stabilize operations? ensure that people with the key knowledge are staying in the roles that need to be retained, that the suppliers that are critical have confidence in the new direction. Um, Everything really in that first phase is how do we calm the waters and gain as much information about where things stand as possible. You and I both know that it's not uncommon right after an acquisition for, for revenues to take a dip a little bit because it's, it's a rocky period if it's not managed well. Um, but I think it's preventable with an intentional transition plan. Um, and step two is helping the new owners figure out what is the vision that they have and how do we set up a manageable change management plan, operational plan to ensure that it's helping the company move in the right direction in a profitable direction but that it is bringing all the right stakeholders along with the leader. Mm-hmm. You try to change things too fast, you're going to have repercussions you don't want with people, you know, f- having natural human reactions to change and feeling unsettled and, and then you lose key talent or, you know, key partners. I think implicit in all of that is a really strong lens on bridge building and change management because you have to be able to build that trust with the team you have to be able to hear their ideas and their perspective to be able to establish the kind of working partnership necessary for this handoff to be feasible a lot of these owners have been the the face of the company um, integral to their employees lives for decades and and so treating that handoff with the kind of respect for the relationships that came before is tricky. And I think it can be done with heart and with purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, But recognizing that the legacy of 
the company also lives on in the relationships. So, so honoring that. And then the last bit, I, just because I'm uh, an Excel nerd and a, a, <laughs> a, a CPA's daughter is, is looking at the, the financial aspects, making sure the books are set up, making sure that, you know, we're understanding where are there challenges around efficiency? Um, how are we driving towards even greater profitability in the short and the long term? It's so many points there that I want to drill down on, especially when you, let's start with the one part where you were mentioning the change management plan. That's a huge one. As far as developing that plan itself, mm -hmm. do you, would it be best to work with you on something like that pre-acquisition to at least have an idea of what you're going to go in and do? And then tweak it once in, or is it best to have, I guess, real experience on what's happening in the business post-acquisition and then, you know, dig in on it? So what do you suggest on, on that part? And oh, then perfect. I'll ask you the next follow-up question on that. Yeah, I, I think earlier is better. I think how the new ownership and the trans transition team shows up can set the tone for how receptive employees, suppliers, partners, clients, customers are to the next conversations. If you can come in with an approach and say, you know, hey, here's, here's what's going to remain intact. Here are the things that we're listening to learn. If you can be intentional about, about addressing the underlying concerns that people maybe won't raise right now because they're watching to see. I think it'll lay the foundation for better trust and more mm -hmm. transparent conversations, which you need. I mean, exactly. there's there's only so much that you can observe in the business passively. Yeah. You need that partnership with all layers of the organization to really be able to drive it to success. So in your role as a fractional COO, do you help make sure that communication happens throughout all the levels? And are you one of the people who, I guess, helps execute this communication plan throughout? Yes, to both. So your COO should have a very good pulse on the teams and the other inputs and outputs, suppliers and clients, because that those people actually i should i should joke that my i i try to explain to see to people what a fractional coo is using the four p's okay <laughs> your coo is a good partner to the executive so that's a strategic thinking partner who can help take the vision get actual measurable make it communicable communicate okay. easy to communicate the people so that's your team, suppliers, vendors, the clients, et cetera, ensuring that everybody's equipped, they're unblocked, and they're collaborative inside and outside the organization. So to your piece on how does a CEO or COO help equip communication, that's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. We're also driving process. So we're looking at is this, is what everyone's doing a measurable and effective use of talent, of tools? and of time to value. And then last, obviously, we're going to have a very close eye on profit. Are we seeing efficiency in the margins? And 
you know, it, in some cases, do we have the right inputs and controls to manage that? Mm-hmm. So to, back to your original question, I think the COO is not just a trusted advisor to the CEO on how are we designing, anticipating, deploying the change management communication, but they are a key representative also making it happen and providing a feedback loop so that it can refine over time. Mm-hmm. So in a case of a, a ETA acquisition, right, does, at what point does the owner or, you know, the new owner of the company, I guess, introduce someone like you to the staff? Yeah, I think it can totally depend. Um, if there's a partnership established early enough that the fractional CEO has a role in doing due diligence and getting to understand the team, it can be as early as then. I know some mm-hmm. owners that want to get in and, and build personal relationships and then realize that, you know, perhaps this is not, they're not feeling exactly equipped or they're feeling a little bit underwater. And then they bring a fractional CEO alongside for that. Mm-hmm. I think it's key to introduce the relationship as a trusted partner to the CEO. Um, but I think as soon as that relationship's established, your your best option is to let that person hit the ground running and build the relationships needed to do the work. I know most of the folks I know once the, the transition happened, like that first meeting when they're introduced to the employees, I mean, it literally feels like this is how it's been described, you know, how it's your first day of school, kindergarten, pre-K, you got to stand up or and say your name (laughs) and everyone's looking at you and you just want to disappear. So it sounds like it's good to have that partnership on display sooner rather than later. But I also wonder, and it depends, you're, you have a great like your whole demeanor, everything about you is very calming. And so <laughs> it, it doesn't feel threatening, right, at all. <laughs> so I could see how someone like you can easily be accepted into pretty much any situation like that. People feel comfortable with you. But in other circumstances, can you have you seen where folks may be skeptical or maybe just afraid of, uh-oh, you know, is this person here to watch and judge me and report back to the CEO of how I'm of how I'm doing my job? Right. Uh, so I'm I'm just wondering how that balance occurs. Right. Yeah. We- yeah. This is part of the reason why when when folks have asked me how to pick the right fractional CEO for their organization, I recommend a few things. But one of them is. Always pick somebody who's run an organization your size because there's a bunch of practical implications for that. But also, ideally, pick somebody who's had some management consulting experience as well, because if you've done management consulting, you know that exact feeling that you're talking about of, oh, you know, here come the hired guns. What are they looking for? Should I, you know, should I watch my back? And if you haven't honed the skills of how to show up in those conversations and foster that trust and ensure that they know that you're on the same team, growing in the same direction, then yeah, I, I could imagine fractional work would, would fall down very fast. 
had the privilege of doing innovation and management consulting for about three years now across even startups to Fortune 100 companies. And I think once you get in the swing of it, it's not it's not a difficult skill, but I think without it, I could see it being an impossible task for that reason. Nobody wants to have, I don't know, a better word for it, like a spy on their yes, team. Yes, yes, that's know, exactly like, it. Mm-hmm. But, but if you're there to promote their wins, to highlight where they are uniquely cal- uh, you know, talented and capable and ensure they've got the right resources and that you're you know, having candid conversations about what is going well and what isn't, and hopefully they are doing the same, over time that trust is established and you're not seen as a as an interloper of somebody versus what you're trying to do, which is get everybody to that next level. Yeah. So you bring up this ter- this word over and over again on trust, trust, building trust. And nowadays, since the pandemic, Folks have struggled to do that remotely. Mm-hmm. Some people are better at it than others, especially when you have tools like Zoom. Like some people exude warmth and friendliness mm-hmm. through the camera. Other folks, not so much, even though they may be great individuals, even great to work with in person. So my question to you is, how important is it for fractional a fractional COO to be on site is it necessary is it recommended that you have I guess a cadence upon which you visit the site or is it not necessary at all I think it depends on the business and I know that's not a satisfactory answer but some of the cases that you raised earlier are where it's a lot of um, on-site trades work I would imagine your fractional talent needs to be regularly there because there's just there's elements of the work that can't be observed over Zoom. I don't know that I've seen an instance where it absolutely had to be every day. I can imagine for like more manufacturing heavy, that would probably be the case, but that's not as much where I specialize. To your point about building trust and collaboration remotely. I do think organizations, regardless of whether or not it's remote or in person, do wrongly assume that if you throw people together with diverse skill sets and talents and capabilities, that just collaboration will happen. Right. <laughs> and, and in some cases, innovation will just magically appear. And and I think that's that's a really that's a recipe for more failure than it is success. And so one of the things that I've I've developed a playbook around are how are how do you intentionally set up a team to trust each other? How do we get people to be honest about their trip wires, the things that they need to succeed and put all of that out on the table before the next round of work, however we define it, begins so that they know how to engage each other. And I've seen success moving people, new teams especially, from that sort of norming really quickly through the storming yeah. things to the performing part because, mm-hmm. because they understand where the gotchas were before they began. And we work very intentionally to create that teaminess at the jump. 
And I think a lot of that can still be done. I'm not, I'm not as opposed to remote work because I actually think it can be, depending on the business, it can create some options for inclusivity mm -hmm. for folks that may otherwise not have had a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So one of the things you mentioned was about having someone who has run an organization your size before. Mm -hmm. In your background, your parents actually ran an accounting firm. So you mentioned that they started it from scratch and then added on by acquiring other companies. Do you mind elab elaborating a little bit more yeah. on that? Go ahead. So my first foray into entrepreneurship, my parents were founders and dad was a CPA, mom was a tax preparer, and and the family all got involved in the business. I still get cold, sweaty hands anytime I see somebody coming at me with a shoebox full of paper. But it gave me a really good early opportunity to get to see the guts of not just a business that my parents were creating, but a variety of different businesses that were their clients. It just so happens that particularly later in high school and early in college, both my parents got ill and a lot of the operations fell to me to sort of keep running. So my, I don't know if we call that entrepreneurship through acquisition. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But it's part of the reason why I ended up going into the route that I did. Before that work, I assumed I was actually going to go off and join the foreign service and become a cultural attache and do all this sort of fun, interesting overseas stuff. Mm -hmm. And instead, what I realized was that I really enjoyed the work of running a business. Went and founded a startup or helped help grow a startup as the first three people. And did that all while caregiving, which is a difficult proposition and I don't recommend it. But it's, yeah. I, you know, I, I think I, I think I have a particular soft spot for, for founders that are trying to balance not just growing the business, but, you know, needs at home. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's most people got something outside of the business that mm -hmm. also consumes their energy and, and time. You mentioned also the, I don't want to just move on from the CPA part because I just want to say how refreshing it is to have a fractional COO who understands the finances behind a bit, the financial statements and understand how they're connected and how those aren't just numbers. They should actually drive strategy based upon right. what you want to do. That's refreshing to hear. I know several of kind of fractional C folks that call themselves fractional COO, which are really behaving like more of highly glorified admin roles. Mm. And um, that is not what you do. And that is not the expertise that, that you have or that you focus on. Yeah, I, I have to give you credit because I think before a recent conversation you and I had, I didn't realize that that was not, table stakes. Mm -hmm. um, and in having more conversations with, with folks that do fractional finance, I'm, I'm beginning to realize that that is something that is, is different. Um, 
mm-hmm. which I'm fascinated by because I don't understand how you can drive efficiency unless you have line of sight on the PL and the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another reason why um, I wanted you to come on to share more of what you do as a mm-hmm. fractional COO because it's definitely not administrative. Um, you're not returning phone calls for me or things mm-hmm. that a virtual assistant would do. Yeah. Um, but believe it or not, there are quite a few out there that that is their value proposition and folks pay them four or $5,000 a month to be a glorified admin. And mm-hmm. um, that is not with those of us who are acquiring businesses and stuff. And I have a responsibility for growing a company that now ridden with additional debt that it did not have before we bought it, mm-hmm. you know, we're responsible for getting things moving and a four or $5,000 a month executive admin is not in the budget. Right. <laughs> right. So, so I appreciate that. So I don't want to skip over that. That's a, a good, good point. But I want to go also back to your innovation work. So I know that you mentioned a little bit about it. So can you tell, can you elaborate a little bit more on on that experience? And it was in management consulting, right? Yeah. So there's a consulting firm here in Atlanta called 352. And I worked with them for a number of years. And innovation covers a lot of ground. We did everything from overhauling client experience design to helping companies figure out how to digitally modernize to creating digital products for new markets they wanted to access. And and my role was really sitting between these brilliant cross-functional teams and ensuring they were equipped and, and set up for success and working together well and, and meeting the deliverables that the, the executives expected but also working closely with the executives on much of the same. How, how is this strategy driving to your bottom line, to the metrics that your leadership cares about? Or if you're the CEO, how is this driving to what the investors care about? How are we, how are we showing that this is successful by every means possible? And then to a certain extent, translating the business speak you know, back to the team so that they're set up to do everything they need to do. But, you know, maybe they don't need to understand what's driving numbers on the P&L, but they need to know, you know, enough context to be able to make the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah, that's so important. One of the things I talk about when I speak with, especially young folks that are entering their careers and even some who have been been involved in a reduced workforce layoff, I tell them moving forward, one of the things I would prioritize is understanding how you add value, financial value to the company. If you don't know what that is, find out immediately Mm -hmm. because those drivers and the strategy that you're talking about is important to, as you know, we're identifying resources. Who on the team can do what to drive those things? And if they're not in that line of value, then chances are they're more susceptible to being on the chopping block. And if you don't actually 
have a role that you can see, all right, this adds to those numbers. Me personally, if I was in the corporate world right now, I would take on some responsibilities that put me in to that financial value chain. Like I'll take on some additional work to be sure that I'm part of adding value to the company in a financial way that the leadership it values and is monitoring. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, hands down, folks. So I know we we weren't necessarily going to talk about that. I wasn't planning to talk about that on this podcast, but for sure, yeah. because that's something that you know inside and out, seeing everything behind the scenes at a company. Right. Well, and it's just real quick. It's It brings to mind an interesting anecdote. I was watching a lady who does leadership development, particularly for women, give a talk about how a lot of, of upcoming female leaders, particularly in corporate, we know that there's a certain amount of like, you have to build relationships, you have to hit your metrics, et cetera. But they asked one of the leaders of the company to come out and say, what is it that you look for when you're selecting people to advance? And he hit all of the points we would have expected, but then he plops at the end that he expects them to have the financial acumen. Yeah. And that facilitator goes to this room of women, show of hands, how many of you knew that that was an expectation of you to advance? And a lot of hands didn't go up. Wow. And so it, it surprised me, but again, I, I came up in a world where that was sort of my starting place. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to hit that home with the young people, that it's not just about hitting your targets, hitting your KPIs, yeah. doing well playing nice in the sandbox, you have to be able to drive the business forward. Yep. It's funny you say that hitting your targets, hitting your KPIs, because I've seen so many posts where people are like, I was hit literally saying I was, we were hitting all of our targets. Mm -hmm. We, and they still laid me off. So now I know that I'm not loyal to a company. This is that and other. And my thing is, like I said er, just a moment ago, is understanding where your position is in their strategic plan, like financially where it is, because those targets and all that, that you may have been assigned, their, their strategy may not prioritize that or it could have shifted some and you're not aware. And so you're working hard on things that are either slowly becoming irrelevant or already is irrelevant in the minds of the staff. And I know of the executive and I know that folks can't, it's not expected that folks are going to follow around executive and constantly keep asking questions. But I think it's important of leaders, yeah, as you mentioned, to communicate with the priority right. bar. Absolutely. So you, that point you just made about understanding the financials of a business. So the name of this podcast is Unpolished MBA. And it's it really started because folks would be like, oh, I, I do I need an MBA to be successful in entrepreneurship? And I say, no, that's a myth. But I do think it's worth noting that understanding financials has nothing to do with having an MBA and it's something you should do. Yeah, absolutely. I a thousand percent agree. You don't need an MBA to run a business successfully. I actually sometimes have the pet peeve that it, there's been I don't know, this mystery shrouded around running a business that only an MBA can solve. And I just, I, I don't love that narrative. Um, no. 
I, one of my pieces of professional experience, we actually, I, at, when I was at Emory, we got to track about 6,500 entrepreneurs as they developed around the world. And I, don't, I would have to go back and look at the statistics, but I don't think pedigree. And yeah, I think understanding the financials can, it can feel a little daunting at first, mm-hmm. but I would have to believe that with all of the online courses and LinkedIn learning and things mm-hmm. like that, it would not be a difficult thing to attain. Because once you understand how those pieces work, a lot of the decisions that drive how the business operates become clear. Yeah. I'll give you a much better example that's not so abstract. There was a case study when we were in grad school, a business that had three different products and they were trying to determine which one was the most profitable. Well, you would think that would be easy, right? You would look at how much money each product is pulling in, the cost related to people and mm-hmm. supplies and et cetera, but they had forgotten to allocate the cost in the warehouse. And once you factored in that cost, and depending on how you factored in that cost, and I'm going to put my nerd hat away because I could go down a bunny hole, depending on how you allocated that cost, product, which product was profitable and which should be cut, changed. Yeah. And so when you have an understanding of how those numbers come together, you have a much clearer understanding of how the strategy is going to get deployed in the business. Great point. Yeah. And for those who are curious why the warehouse would impact things, if you think about having to allocate the cost, do you do it by headcount? Do you do it by the amount of dollars that are coming in? So it's divided by profit. Do you do it by square footage? Each of the product requires like any of those scenarios changes what looked profitable for that company. Wow. That's a great point. When you work with an, with the, let's say entrepreneur post-acquisition, do you help them figure out those types of measurements, KPIs, metrics that they should be monitoring and setting up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think what the step one is under baseline and understand everything, but step two is help everybody get clear on how are we going from what is the top line goal through OKRs, KPIs, I'm throwing out all the acronyms now, um, to make sure that all levels of the organization know which piece is theirs to achieve and how it rolls up into the bigger strategy. So, you know, that includes working with your CEO, CFO, et cetera, on what's efficient and profitable. Mm-hmm. Where can we identify opportunities to tweak or retool or buy a different subscription sometimes. Yeah. Um, So, yes, I think I am very data-driven. I I strive to balance strategy with empathy and data with bias for action because without any of those four corners, I don't know that you get the impact that you want in a business. Indeed. I, I want to be able to share more with the audience on if they're looking for a fractional COO, they may not even know they need one. How would they know they need one? (laughs) Yeah. So I think there's a couple of different triggers that I've seen for folks that really set them on the path of, okay, I need help. What help do I need? One is they're feeling the crunch. 
they are in the guts of the business more than they want it to be. They're starting to feel a little underwater and they need somebody to come alongside and provide some bandwidth so they can come up for air or focus on biz dev outside facing work. And I think that's sort of the lower end of things. The medium size, I would say they're coming into a business new themselves or they've had something kind of shake the business and they know that they need to have a much closer grasp on what's happening, but there's just not enough hours in the day or there's not the right expertise. So they want that partner who can come in and evaluate and quickly help provide some value and stability. And then I would say level three is on the more extreme end of things, they need to step away for some reason. You know, your fractional COO should be able to run the business in your absence if needed. So if you needed to step away for personal health matters or family things or whatever, temporarily your fractional COO could come in, keep the lights on and the doors open so you're not having to decide between these pressing needs and keeping your business going. Whoa. You know, I've never heard a fraction of COO ever, ever say that, ever. (laughs) That is incredible that you view it that way holistically, because it sounds like what you have determined is that you are making yourself responsible for the business being successful when you're their operational partner in the role of fractional COO. That's what it sounds like. Absolutely. And I think that's the core difference between some of the freelance and consultant and advisor talents is those folks, absolutely brilliant, have a place in the business world. But it's a different thing when you are stepping in as a fractional talent where you're saying, we've got this together. I'm not just your, you know, I'm not just here to do the stuff. Like one of the reasons I lead when I tell people fractional COO, that four P's framework is because partner is the first step. That COO, CEO relationship is critical. There has to be partnership there because not only are you guys building strategy and a company and all of that together, running a business is hard. Yeah. And if you don't have somebody that you can turn to and go, I just need five minutes to vent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and know that it's going to stay in the cone of silence. And not only is that person going to get it, they're going to have empathy for it and also be able to pull out the pieces that they can fix and run with. That's huge. Like that's that's a difference maker in a business running a business being an enjoyable experience and a and a slog. Yeah. Wow. As a business owner yourself, though. How many clients can you take on if you have so much involvement in them? Yeah. So one of the things that I try to help clients right size at the jump is exactly how much time they need. If I have three one level level one clients, as I call them, um, that's my max load. If it's one of the folks that's that we talked about that's in need of somebody who can just take the reins and mm-hmm. keep everything going in their absence, then that's one at a time. Yeah. Um, because it's just it's a different thing when you've got to come in, get to know the team, build that trust, keep everything intact and run payroll. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> then right. it is if you're coming in to help create some operational efficiency and some bandwidth, you know. Yeah. 
That's excellent. I want you to share with folks the best way to get in touch with you if they're interested in having more conversation with you about this. Yeah. So I am on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is an easy way to find me. I'm unfortunately on that multiple times a day. And I say <laughs> unfortunately because my phone likes to remind me how often I'm on the app. I'm easily accessible there. I do have a website as well. It is ceofconsulting.com. And I will inevitably need to rebrand because I chose that because it's my initials, but I think it has caused some some confusion on what all it is I provide. So, but for now you can find me there or LinkedIn and I'd be happy to talk to anybody who's thinking about if it's time to bring in a talent. Yeah, I will say <laughs> Harvard Business Review back in 2006, although I think it's still applicable today, warned that the COO is the most mysterious of the C-suite jobs. And, uh, and it's because there's a lot of ways you can specialize and there's a thousand different flavors and specialties. So if you're thinking about it and you want a sounding board, I'm happy to be a resource. And if for some reason I'm not the right fit, I have, I'm happy to pass you along to the network of people that I trust. That's very kind of you, Caitlin. And I am going to put links to everything that she mentioned, including the website in the show notes. And Caitlin, I want to thank you for joining us today and sharing so much insightful information. I'm sure it's going to be very helpful, especially to my ETA audience who are struggling typically post-acquisition and to start it to life. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Unpolished MBA podcast. To hear more episodes or to request to become a guest, please visit unpolishedmba.com.